I've just been notified. You're on the shortlist. Congratulations. Shortlist? And I shall use all the influence I can muster to ensure that you get that job. That's very kind of you, sir, but actually I don't want that job. Yes, you do, Nathan. Of course you do. I'll withdraw my name straight away. Not a good idea. A very bad idea, in fact. Why? Well, in the first place, you're the only Brit left. It wouldn't look good to pull out before the final adjudication. Well, I didn't realize it was an event in multimedia sport. Tell me, do I wear a sponsor's logo? And it carries a rank that you're very unlikely to reach down here. Commander, International Space Police Force. <laughs> Got a certain ring to it? Hmm. A fairly hollow ring given a force of 20-so part-timers, unaffectionately termed the Star Cops. That was a cheap journalistic jibe. Stuck, though, didn't it? They need someone like you to shake them up. Somebody who's never left Earth before. Spacemen are ten a penny, Nathan. What they need is a good copper. Fine. Why don't you go up there? Out there. I'm sorry? I understand the expression is out there, not up there. I believe the expression is no thank you, sir. Welcome to episode 3 of Who and Company. My name is Drew. And I'm Brent. And this month we have a fellow podcaster that you all know and love on board with us to just have a good old chin wag about things we've learned from Doctor Who. We are going to discuss a couple of his favorite classic television shows, ones that are not Doctor Who. And stay tuned after the credits at the end of this podcast for a short little special tribute to the late John Hurt. Our guest today is no stranger to podcasting, Doctor Who or otherwise. His co-hosting duties include letting a sports nerd shine on hockey fields with her friend Rachel, testing his mental metal on the memory cheats with Josh, and sporadically recapping the history of our favorite show with his wife Erica on the always charming Lazy Doctor Who. Our listeners are more likely to know him as one-third of the three who rule on the longest-running Doctor Who podcast on the Podwaves, Radio Free Scarrow. Stephen Chapansky, welcome to Who and Company. Thank you very much, Drew. And hello, Brent. Hello. <laughs> well, it's uh, great to have you on the show. <laughs> well, it's nice to hear such a lovely introduction that uh, you obviously uh, read from your mind and not from a piece of paper. So thanks for even taking the time to write such a thing about me, your humble guest. It's very nice of you. Well, the beautiful thing about doing a monthly show is that we can spend 10 to 15 minutes preparing for it, as opposed to <laughs> uh, the weekly show where we just hit record and, and just say the first things that come into our heads. Yeah, I've been doing that for almost 11 years now, <laughs> and look where it's gotten me. <laughs> well, you're on our show, so congratulations. It's all paid off. <laughs> well, I'd like to announce that after this show, I'll be retiring from podcasting then. <laughs> no offense. I've hit the pinnacle. It's I'm like sure it's fine. 600 episodes of your program, but you know, at least you made it onto episode three of ours. <laughs> episode three? Goodness me. <laughs> this is the thing about monthly podcast. We've been doing three months, and this is episode three. Oh, that's uh, I, 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 I wonder what I would do with a monthly podcast. I don't know how I'd handle myself because I'm sort of locked into a weekly routine, as I have been for the past decade. And um, so <laughs> it's commendable to you, to gentlemen, to, that you remember that you have a podcast to do every month because I'd probably forget. Well, the nice thing about our format is uh, we get some homework to watch beforehand. And so mm -hmm. that's it's nice. There's a there's a build to it. There's a leisure to it, which I, I personally enjoy quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I can see the appeal. I can see the appeal. Stephen, I want to ask you. I am a guitarist. I've been playing guitar for oh lord, thirty years. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I know you play drums. I was just going to ask you uh, how that was going. If you're still playing with your band and how long you've been playing and some of your influences and that kind of thing. 
Um, it's funny you say that. I haven't I haven't been playing for a few weeks until last night when I I went over to some friends and we just sort of jammed a little bit. Uh, my our the wedding band that I was basically in that sort of did weddings and various other events uh, is sort of no more because the people have moved to different cities and whenever and had children and whenever you want to keep a band going. Um, moving in children is always going to be two of the biggest impediments in, in continuing it. So, so I know I hadn't been drumming that much as of late, which is a shame because I, I greatly enjoy it. I, I I started drumming, I think when I was ten, ten or eleven, and when I would annoy the hell out of my grade five teacher, who just happened to be the grade six music teacher, and I sat in the front row and banged on my books with pencils all year, and he remembered that obviously because it was annoying him. And assigned me the drums in in grade six band, and the rest is history. I've I've, I've played nothing. Well, I've played drums ever since. Um, but it wasn't until I want to say I was seventeen. When I was seventeen, a friend of mine I was over to friends. We were playing like Space Quest on his Commodore computer or something like that in nineteen ninety two, and he and he threw on Led Zeppelin in through the outdoor, and it blew me away. I was ready to just sort of give up drums. I was kind of done with them, and then I heard John Bonham on on that album, and that just fueled the passion for for Led Zeppelin and John Bonham. So so my primary in, influence is is Bonham, and I found I don't know if you've, you've seen the 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 film the Led Zeppelin concert film the song remains the same but yeah. um in in that there that's shot in the, came out in 1976 but it was shot in the, on the 1973 tour he has a he has a Ludwig Vista light kit which is which is see-through and tinted orange and was made famous on that I just happened to look at a at the want ads one day two months after buying a drum set already a new drum set my first ever real proper drum set and then I saw that someone was selling an exact replica of that kit um, circa, circa 1970s. It wasn't a reissue. This was back in 1995. And so I bought that. I, I somehow scrounged the money together in, in hours and, and bought this, uh, this Ludwig Vistalite kit, which, and so every time I hear a concert from 1973 or 75, when he used these drums, they say, that's my drums up there. That sounds just like my drums. Because of course, if you have those drums, you have to tune them to be, to sound exactly like John Bonham's drums. So so having that drum set kind of fueled me. Like I was thinking, of, if I'm going to have this drum set, I'm going to have to like you know <laughs> earn it, so to speak. And so that that's really propelled me into into wanting to be a drummer. And so uh, I started. Well, I was in a band for a few years in the in the '90s as well, and then a, another one, couple, three in in the 2000s a little bit, and then now it's just sort of a, a weekend hobby at, at at most which is kind of kind of a shame i'm in my 40s now and i suppose that's ha that's what happens with with musicians music is a game for the young if you want to sort of start a band and <laughs> and, and be creative and uh, for the weekends it's for people like us true <laughs> brent you play as well right so uh do you i don't think we've ever discussed this do you do this as a hobby or do you uh do you do gigs as well it's mostly a hobby. Uh, for a while there, I was a DJ. I was a karaoke DJ. And so I would also use my equipment and go around and do some open mics. So that was a thing for a while. And um, then life happened with marriage and kids. And <laughs> You see? You see? Yeah, see? It pretty much, it didn't kill it, but it, it knocked it down quite a few notches. So, I mean, I, I play in right now just sort of as a hobby. I'd love to go do something, but there's just so many other things I have to do with work and all that. And so now it's reduced to me playing guitar in the living room to my my new uh, Freddie Mercury tribute concert DVD that just came in the other or Blu-ray that just came in the other day <laughs> in my living room uh, along with the dog. So um, acoustically, I might add. Well, so, uh, I'm I'm intrigued by this, and I, I am now forced to ask this question: What was your go-to karaoke song? And Stephen, I'm going to ask you this next. So, but I want to hear what Brent. You set up. You had to sing, right? Did you? Did you? Uh, was there one? I that, did. What was your What was your signature piece? There was. Um, whenever we would set up, and that's how I met my wife, also, and and I very slyly got her a job with the guy I was working for and that's how we met <laughs> so we we did shows together after that but I would also you know instead of just setting up and saying okay come on up and sing 
you know, it was my job to do a song first and then ask other people or whatever. And everybody always wanted to hear Wanted Dead or Alive. So <laughs> well, that's <done>. the one. <laughs> and some nights it was fun and some nights it was work. But, you know. Steven, do you have a go-to uh, karaoke? Do you have a go-to karaoke song? You know, I'm not as... Every year it's... Um... At Gallifrey Warner Chicago Tardis, they they sort of have a, a um a karaoke stage, and every year I'm compelled to think, oh, this is gonna be the year that I go up there and do it. And I've only ever gone up once, maybe twice. And I think uh, <laughs> "True" by Spando Ballet was my song of choice because I could cheese it up <laughs> at Friday night at eleven o'clock. So so it's, it, by acclamation, that's my that's my uh, that's my karaoke song. And if I am if I ever have the guts to go up there again, I'll be searching through the book uh, to see if they have "True" by Spando Ballet. Otherwise, I probably won't get up on stage. You wouldn't do a Zeppelin tune. No, hell no, no! I can't be Robert Plant. I, I would want a drum, like I'd air drum the whole time, and that's it. Um, so no, I wouldn't do Led Zeppelin. Uh, I I think I did a talking. I think I did once in a lifetime once because I was going through a, a talking heads phase, which recurs in my life. I go mm-hmm. through talking heads phases, and I so I wanted to do that one, which is not the best talk- karaoke song either. But I didn't care. <laughs> Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I have I have a prepared question, so I'm going to need you to prepare for my prepared question. Here it is. Uh, okay. If a quasi-omnipotent galactic being were to set upon your mind in such a way that you were no longer able to retain new information and were to be purged of all previously learned information, and here comes the question, which would you choose to live life without, hockey or Doctor Who? Oh. <sighs> Tough question, Drew. Without hockey, it's. I mean, you catch me at a at a, at a vulnerable moment because uh, my local sports team, the Edmonton Oilers, who have been out of the playoffs since two thousand six. Coincidentally, about three months before I started podcasting, so I've never I've never talked about Doctor Who in a podcast and an Oilers playoff game in the same sentence. Um, and so, like, right now, I feel like hockey is, quite frankly, consuming me now as, as we approach the end of the regular season and then the playoffs will, will, will come along. So I, I have a slight recency bias uh, because of that. But then how could I give up Doctor Who, um, especially since it's coming back on April 15th? I don't know when this is coming out, but it's coming back on April 15th. And I imagine as it gets closer to that. Coincidentally, I think the playoffs stop, start April 12th. So that week is going to be a write-off for me. And oh gosh, that's a tough question. Why do you have why? Why do you have to ask me these either or questions? It's difficult. It's difficult. <laughs> which child? Which child would you like to leave behind? <sighs> Man, I think Doctor Who is probably more res- responsible more for more things in my life. So I'd, I'd have to, out of sheer loyalty, pick Doctor Who. And hope that I <laughs> get get hooked on hockey. Hey, work for my wife. My wife. My wife saw her first. Um, my wife Erica from Verity and Daisy Doctor Who saw her first hockey game in person, uh, NHL game in 2013, and it became immediately hooked. And now she has her own hockey podcast. So it it can happen. I can start fresh and become a hockey fan all over again. So yeah, I'll pick Doctor Who. Okay, impressive. <laughs> I, I had to work my way around to get to there, though. No, no, I, I knew this was going to be difficult for you. I mean, you know, yeah. having access to, uh, you know, looking at Twitter and Facebook updates on your account, I was like, well, let's let's uh, let's uh, throw a hard one in there for him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you did so well with answering questions uh, a couple years back at Li Who for for the um, for our little game show that we did. Uh, so I thought I'd, I'd throw some throw one out there for you. <laughs> you have presented us with with um something quite interesting uh you know uh, when we when we have a guest on we ask what kind of shows that you would like to to discuss outside of doctor who because we know that just like your love for hockey our guests have love you know they all come to us via doctor who this is how we know you this is how we meet you this is sort of that that life we've embraced but we also know it's not the only thing in your life um and so we we do ask our guests about 
programming that that uh, aside from Doctor Who that they want to talk about, and you have presented it with not one but two shows <laughs> uh, to to kind of review for homework for this program. And uh, I would just like to say I thank you for both of those options. Which one would you like to talk about first? Oh boy, let's let's talk in order of broadcast and discovery. I suppose we'll talk about the tripods first. Okay. How old were you when you first saw the tripods? I've been trying to piece this together. I, it was in the summer of... Uh, I see this where I, 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 I can't remember if it's 1989 or 1990. Um, I'm leaning towards 89 uh, when I was 14 at the time. And it's weird. I was I, I, I actually watched this completely un- separate to this podcast. I decided to watch each episode... Um, while I was on the elliptical trainer leading up to Gallifrey 1, I thought, oh, perfect, there's like um, 25 weekdays until Gallifrey 1. Let's hop on the elliptical and watch an episode of the Tripods each day because, quite frankly, 25 minutes is all I can handle on the elliptical trainer. And um, I, I just remembered, like, when I, when I was a kid, I was over at my friend Rob Tucknett's house. I always remember this uh, because I think it was I was 8 or 9 at that time. Having just seen Star Wars, he used to go over to his place to play with his Star Wars toys and stuff. And he was flipping around. As I was about to go home for supper, I just lived down the block. And he was flipping around. And he, I just happened to look up at the time that he that this weird guy in a scarf and a hat was walking around this, this console in a brightly lit television studio. And I asked him, what what is that? And he said, it's Doctor Who. Um, and... I just, I, I became fascinated by it, and I had to find out what this was, just based on like a three or four second clip of Doctor Who. I just, I find amazing that I just happened to look up at that exact time, and my life was changed. Fast forward to 1989 or 90, and I was flipping around again, and caught the, like, the last five seconds of an episode of whatever this show was on YTV, which is a Canadian sort of kids channel it was sort of um they were showing a lot of doctor who for one and i think they bought a whole packet of of bbc stuff and were airing it and then the the theme music kicked in and i was blown away by the theme music and the end credits and it looked like it was kind of like a space guy with something and it was on bbc videotape which of course enthralled me at the time and had i not flipped around had i not sort of landed on that channel at that time i would have never have seen it i just find it fascinating that there's two television series in my life that has sort of been, um, you know, a cornerstone for me. I've just completely stumbled upon randomly. And so, so because the Tripods, quite frankly, is that kind of a show for me. I just, I saw it at the exact right time, and I just became hooked on that show. Um, but we, we can talk about how I became hooked on it um, throughout this conversation. But that's how I discovered it. Well, that's cool. Um, you know, for those fans who got into Doctor Who like you two before kind of the advent of digital television and DVDs, you know, watching Doctor Who was always tricky because you couldn't always, you were kind of at the mercy of what whatever was on TV or what you had recorded previously. Was the same for the tripods? Was it a regularly scheduled show? Did you watch it, you know, was it every couple of days or something it was on or is it a weekly program or? It was, it was on every week. Here's the thing. Um. I didn't know, I had no idea what, how many episodes there were of the show, where it was in the run at all. It was on the TV guide, it just said the tripod. So I knew, okay, I, it was the tripods, I could figure that out. Um, and so I missed the week after, because I don't think I found it at that time, or forgot, to, I don't know what, I can't remember. And then I said, well, oh, there it is right there, I'll record the next one. And so I did, except the tape ran out, I'd say, about seven minutes in. And I said, oh, that's too bad. Um, so, I'll, uh, but I'll get the next one, though. And so I recorded that one, and it literally ended about 30 seconds before the, the <laughs> probably the end credits, as I found out later on. Little did I know at the time, series two, this is series two, this is the final episode of Tripods. I didn't know that that was the last series and that it ended on a cliffhanger. The The last shot, I won't spoil it for you, the last shot of the episode is sort of the, you know, they come up and they're looking at something that's off camera and you just start to see their reaction 
boom, and the recording ends. I literally did not see what they were looking at. And then the next week happens, I think, I don't know, I didn't know that this was the last episode, and suddenly everyone looks a year or so younger, and it's like seven months ago. Oh, wow, so that was the last episode, and now this is the first one. And so I watched, I taped it every week from then on, and I got so hooked on it that I we went, uh, me and my family went away to go camping somewhere on some trip, and... I was so, I think I was still in the midst of seeing Colin Baker's run for the first time, I think. No, that's, that, that's wrong, because I was, I was taping Doctor Who episodes on Saturday nights on, on PBS for my own collection, you know, just getting the, uh, um, and, and those of you who, who grew up with that know that, knew that it probably takes two or three years to sort of like work all the way back around again. And so I was like sort of taping each episode on its own tapes for my own personal library and stuff. And I had I had to go away. And so I, I told my friend, here's a tape for the tripods. Here's a tape for Doctor Who. Tripods on Thursday night. Doctor Who's on Saturday night. If you have to miss one of them, miss Doctor Who. Ooh. He missed the tripods. <laughs> Don't. He missed the tripods, and it happened to be the episode that that came after the one that I just saw, like the few seconds of to to initially get me into the um, the episode. I didn't see that episode until the early two thousands uh, when it finally came out on DVD. I only had the sound. I only had the because they put out the soundtrack of the music. I only had one three minute song. Uh, from the soundtrack to sort of imagine what was happening in that episode. So it was, it. So that episode sort of stands out as sort of being one that I'm not familiar with, but that there, I always dreamed of seeing. It was missing, presumed wiped. <laughs> it was kind of in its way. Yeah, my own missing episode. It was. It was. It was quite a moment. Uh so you have the DVD of it. Available, right? So I think that was only available in region region two. It was in four, right? I don't think they ever. Well, I think I think the um yeah, because I used to have uh, they put out the first season of on DVD in the late nineties, which for some reason was stolen from me. I don't understand how anyone could steal that, but um, so I I had that, and then and then I think a few years passed, and they finally put both seasons out on DVD, but not in. In uh, in region one, neither in region one. So I did track them down. I, I you know I have them now, but I was it was a it was a quest. It was a quest to sort of just to get them to DVD. Quite frankly, I think the BBC BBC Four I want to say did a uh, six part series sort of looking at um, it's called Cult the Cult of T- Sci Fi or something. Mm-hmm. And they did a half. It's great stuff, actually. They're all. I think they're all on YouTube. There's one on the tripods as well. They are. There's one yeah. on Star Cops, which we'll talk about. Um, and uh, and so I think that kind of spurred enough interest in the show to sort of put the whole thing out on on DVD. So I was I was glad for that. It, it felt like a bit of a, a closure to that, although it's never really ended in, in my mind. Well, I mean, it is sort of possible to end it because they are based off of a a book series. Did you ever? read the third book in the series to find out how the kind of trilogy ends several times actually it's it's one of the few book series that i've i've read i'm not much of a reader but i i really dug into that and noticed the changes obviously because books change when when they get put on tv i have to credit ytv though because um they were I, th- I want to. Th- I think they actually took extra time in their slot to do this because the- they used to air Doctor Who, and some episodes from the '60s were like 26 minutes long, and they would chop stuff out to make the uh, the broadcast time fit. But for the tripods, after after episode, like when I finally got to the the end of the the series proper, now having seen the whole thing leading up to it, they actually did a big two or three minute scroll with like narration, uh, basically recapping events of the third book to um to let people know how the whole thing ended which i thought was quite nice because you know that like i said that that took three minutes out of the out of the their time slot to do that and and they actually put it together to you know they cared enough about the show to actually tell you how it wrapped up um so yeah it, it, it was it honestly it's um i mean doctor who missing episodes are are, are awful and i hate that they're missing and everything like that 
But to this day, the fact that they, they never made a third series of the tripods, just it, it kills me inside. I'm just watching that series again recently as it's getting to the last two episodes. I'm going, oh, right, this ends here. This ends. They shut it down before they finish it. It's just, it's one of the great tragedies. I was very impressed by the production quality of the, the episodes. Um, very much so. The, the sets, like the underground tunnels in France... In episode three, and and uh, the one you told us to watch was uh, series two, episode five, where they go into the city. That looked awesome, right? Um, I mean, the opening shot of the of the first. It's a great, great opening shot. The pre credit sequence in that first scene, where you sort of see, you know, the the great timestamp, England, a village in England, um, July twenty eighty nine, or June twenty eighty nine, and you think, oh wow, it's a future, and then a horse and cart goes by, and like it all sets up this little <laughs> parochial village. And then that wonderful shot of the tripod standing in water, which is, you know, it's just, it's three prop legs that are sort of melded in uh, with the BBC prop. And then you think, that looks impressive. And then you think, like, this is 1984 that this was being made in. And it's, it looks so much better than Doctor Who did at the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't help but notice that as well. It's an intriguing premise. And, and I got to say, just having watched the episodes I have, I think I may have to go and the books are not in our library. Um, you know, I, of course, I'm a, I'm a children's librarian, so that's the kind of book that I would have in there. And I checked the consortium, which is a collection of libraries throughout North Carolina that we can order books. We can share books in between us. No one has them. What? And no one has the series. So I am... I'm putting them in our April order, and I'm going to get all three of the books. I think I can get them in a, a kind of an omnibus edition, all three of them in one book. Uh, I think it'll be kind of enjoyable. I, I personally oh, would like true. to read through it. Yeah, they they also. I think you put out. Um, um, John Christopher put out. I think a prequel years later. I think before the tripods came. I think I haven't read that, but that's in, sort of included. And in, I don't know if that's included in part of it, but. Uh, um, but that'd be intriguing as well that I haven't, I've never seen. But I, I, I applaud you. That's awfully nice of you to, to sort of help try to, to bring these books to a, a new generation because I, I quite enjoyed them. Well, it's sort of what I do. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the beautiful job <laughs> as a librarian, it's kind of like, I need to find books I think people will read. And I, yeah, personally, if I think I find it intriguing, I think a lot of the kids will too, especially because they're like, what should I read? I'm like, oh, you should read this. I put a lot of weird stuff in their hands. Um, and I'd be more than happy to get them hooked on on that. I just wish they would release the DVD in Region One, so I could watch it without uh, any kind of weird, weird scrambled stuff. Because apparently YouTube is uh, not a big fan of the tripods. It's a shame. Um, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have them all now, but uh, I know what you mean. Like, it's so few people know of this show and the people who i know in england uh are sort of look back on it slightly derisively they just go oh the tripods yeah where are the tripods there should have been more tripods in the show called the tripods uh because because the budget wouldn't allow to sort of have these marauding huge 50 foot tall robots more or less um you know attacking our heroes and such um i actually find i mean uh, you know the story of the tripods is that there's earth is in the 21st century and they've been they're now ruled by these tripods that sort of keep uh, the populace in place, and and three young boys want to go and and change that, and so they go off to the White Mountain. That happens in series one, and then they they eventually sort of get into the the tripod city in in series two, and uh, I lost my train of thought. What's I going to talk about? <laughs> well, that's 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 a, that's a good summation of the first two seasons of the show. <laughs> It is. I completely had a point going on there. Uh, it was. I think it, it was. It was marketed as sort of like to the same. Like it was on like Blue Peter and stuff. Like it took over the 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 Saturday tea time slot that Doctor Who had uh, before they abandoned it in the Peter Davison era. So it was just sitting there. So they decided to put this thing back on there. And so it, it came with a lot of advance hype and a lot of money. Uh, partially funded by, um, I think, Seven Network in Australia. So they had this this sort of huge budget. And I think people were, were disappointed that there were no, you know, there weren't tripods everywhere. But I here's the point I was going to make. But actually there was, um, I think, the lack of tripods 
actually made it more suspenseful because you got the characters and all of a sudden you think everything's going fine. Then the tripod appears. You know, they're not like chasing them around as much throughout the all all the episodes. They're just sort of there in the background. You're aware of them. You're aware of of how they've you know sort of settled the culture. The great the great thing about the, about it is it isn't about like War of the Worlds is about an invasion. This is long after the invasion, you know, everyone has sort of settled into life after the invasion. And it's kind of interesting because, you, you know, you don't, there, there's not tripods marauding all over because the, the, the population is now kept in place. And so that's kind of scary as well. And that it's not the tripods that are necessarily, necessarily thwarting our young heroes. It's the entire world that they inhabit because it's all taken over by the tripods. It's a wonderful premise. It really is. It's a quest narrative, which is, at least the first season is a quest narrative, and I really enjoy that. And it's nice to see young um, young kind of heroes doing the, that sort of thing. And because they're so ignorant of the world around them, uh, we get to learn as they learn. So it's a, it's a good mm-hmm. way of creating that exposition. It's sort of like having a companion asking the doctor. So you have, every time they come to a new location and they need to, to know about it. Um, the introductory of the character um, uh, was it Ozymandias? Um, Ozymandias, yep. Ozymandias, um, who uh, I have to wonder where he gets his maps from because apparently he's handing those things out to uh, tons of different kids. Um, but that's neither <laughs> here nor, nor there. For such a fun, it's a local, uh, it's a local print shop around the mountain. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They they do a brisk business in and uh, maps for runaways. Um, there is a um, a level of humor in this show that I was not expecting, that I, I feel is fairly subversive, that I, I quite enjoyed. Especially with the there ending. is, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think you watched the first three episodes. I think there's some humorous stuff actually in in the fourth episode, um, <laughs> which is not like a direct thing. Oh, you've watched three, and I now watch four. Uh, but there there was a lot lot funnier than I expected it would be. Um, because, you know, it's the first three episodes are sort of on a road trip, and then I'll, I'll just say that they discover the remnants of Paris afterwards. Um, and, so, and so they stumble on civilization, you know, which is completely brand new to them. Um, but, of course, we know exactly what's, what it's all about because it's, like, you know, stuff that's, that's probably from, from 100 years ago or the mid-1980s at the time. So, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of humor in that. I wasn't expecting that sort of humor that, to sort of come through in this show. Um, Brent, I don't know if you had anything else to, to add on that before we move on to our next show. Yeah, um, especially the first series, the whole quest thing. It reminded me a lot of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Where you have two friends, where in this case, cousins, but they go on this long, dangerous journey or quest to find the White Mountains where, you know, a gang of resistance people are hiding out, so... And uh, the, the one you wanted to watch, uh, you asked us to watch, was Series 2, Episode 5, where they go into the city, and they actually show one of the masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was his name? West 865? Master West 468. 468, okay. He has his number wrong. But, uh, he, you know, he reminded me of uh, Kosh in Babylon 5. <laughs> no, no spoilers now, because I'm watching that with with because uh, my wife Erica does a uh, Babylon Five podcast. Uh, there, but j- just a basic. Yeah, you know, I know what yeah. you mean. This, it's it's. Such, I mean, you look closely now. It's bubble wrap, uh, but it's well lit bubble wrap as opposed to the Ark in space. Um, but what an amazing design! You know, there's a guy in there moving him around a little bit, but it's completely not humanoid. And to have this massive alien sort of be a, a main character in in the show, I find was just very bold. And then that city, the model of the city, I think was like huge. I, I saw I saw the making of on, I think they showed it on a BBC thing. That might be available on YouTube as well. And I think it was like half a studio, that model of the, of the City of Gold interior took up. It was just a giant model that sadly I think... Uh, was damaged in a fire uh, a few years ago. But there was that, and then, of course, the, the video effects were amazing as well. I mean, you know, so so when... I mean, I, I for the shame that you couldn't watch all the episodes uh, because once you sort of get locked into that, this, the feel of Series 1, and it's all very, you know, this weird old-timey world with these sort of um, tripods marching around in it, when 
it comes time for the viewer to go inside the city of gold. You're so used to the world this this show is set in that it just it's it hits you with such force. And then that's I mean the whole series got me at the time, but once once I was locked in and sort of like living the lives of these of these heroes and these boys, um, when they enter the city of gold, I just oh that that model sequence, which I think is about two minutes long. And this great suite of music from Ken Freeman, who did the music for it, and it just—it's just majestic. And you think of this is done like on—it's not even done on film, like most model footage. It's done on videotape for crying out loud, and it still looks amazing. That—that—that that, that those first two or three minutes of that—that that City of Gold sequence is one of my f- favorite sequences in television history. I just mm. adore it. And I had to ask you. I- I always look for this when I watch old BBC shows, but at any Doctor Who connections. And I only noticed a couple. I don't know if you picked up on more than me. Well, you've seen the whole thing, and I haven't. But I saw John Scott Martin as a school teacher. You betcha you did. <laughs> and uh, Christopher Barry directed a few episodes, and that's all I could find. I got one. I got one. <laughs> what do you got, Drew? So I'm I'm watching uh, episode five, and the, uh, the master's talking to the kid. I'm like, I know this voice. Where do I know <laughs> this voice from? And it's um, I couldn't I couldn't couldn't I was thinking do I know it from Doctor Who? No, I know it from American Werewolf in London, and so I was like, I, I, is there a connection between the two of those? And I looked it up, and it's um, Woodvine, who plays the it. who plays the Marshal, and is it Armageddon Factor, right? Yep. Yeah. Ah. So um, I recognize the voice. It's such a good, deep, rich voice. I mean, he's been in everything if you watch BBC TV. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I didn't recognize anyone visually, but I got a I got a voice out of it. No, uh, yeah, John, well, I love his voice. He's, he's does great yeah. work in there. If if you're there's other um, as I as I scan the Rolodex in my mind, uh, there's uh, Pamela Salem features in a few episodes in series one, uh, alongside Jeremy Young, who is who was um, Cal in uh, in An Earthly Child. He's in that. I'm uh, just trying to think here. Further on, um, Peter Halliday is in it later on in Series 1. Of course, he was uh, Packer and a few other roles in, in Doctor Who history. Uh, as I scan ahead to Series 2, there aren't a lot. Edward Highmore is there. He was played Malcon in, in Planet of Fire. And then Bruce Purchase is, is in the, the final two episodes, who of course was the uh, the captain in the pirate planet. So and then and then there's a few people behind the scenes as well. Um, I think Steve Druitt is there. I think he used to work on visual effects for Face of Evil amongst amongst other things. So being a BBC production. There's a lot of stuff there. And yeah, Christopher Barry is there. And he was I uh, the, my favorite thing is in that um, that cult of sci-fi documentary series, and that's sort of you know Christopher Bear's going like it's amazing that this thing is carried on. And he's like, was it ever repeated? No, they never repeated. It. Never repeated it. Like this aired once in England for two years, and it was never ever shown again on TV. And it, it sort of built up this cult following, which is quite something when you think about it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so we while we're looking for Doctor Who connections in uh, in the tripods, there are some jump standouts right from the beginning uh, for Star Cops, if you guys want to move on to that, um, because it was created by, um, I think, one of one of my favorite writers from, from Doctor Who. So, Stephen, you want to tell us a little bit more about Star Cops? So, S- Star Cops uh, was from 1987. <clears throat> I saw it in 1991. I'm pretty sure about that. It sort of aired um, on weeknights in 1991. And, of course, my, my radar was pinging for anything sci-fi, BBC-related. That's why I got onto Red Dwarf. That's why I got onto Star Cops, Tripods, Hitchhiker's Guide, etc. Um, Star Cops is even even shorter run than the Tripods. It only <laughs> lasted nine episodes because they decided to air it in the summer on on in August in 1987. And this is back with summer series, where you just didn't do that. You know, they didn't put new programs on in the summer, and so it died a quick death. Alas, it didn't get the ratings that they wanted. But the the premise is it's set in the year 2027, the futuristic space year of 2027, <laughs> where there are space stations flying all over Earth. Uh, but there are policemen that need to police the uh, the you know the spaceways, so to speak. And so that's that's where this comes in. It sort of focuses on. A, um, a reluctant appointee, Nathan Spring, who is the uh, sort of the head of of this Star Cop division, so to speak, and he has a various um, internationally based cast around him that sort of 
solve crimes. And what I like about it is that it's 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 kind of like if you'll forgive the phrase, down-to-earth crimes, but set in space. I, it's, it's, it's just sort of like, it feels like a real cop show that just happens to be set uh, in space and on, on the moon, which is it's kind of the cool premise that I think it was. It also needs to be said that the term star cop is a derogatory term. Uh, is not it is. what they call themselves. <laughs> yeah. It's not like Starsky and Hutch in space where they kick down doors and <laughs> Star Cops, you're under arrest. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when you suggested this one uh, for the podcast, um, I was like, oh boy, we get to watch a show called Star Cops. I'm sure this is. I'm sure this is a. This is you know a, an ironic suggestion on Stephen's part. Uh, you know. It's going to be funny because it's so bad because nothing called Star Cops could really take itself seriously. And then I watched the first watch. I saw Chris Boucher's name flash up on the screen. I'm like, I am intrigued. Let's watch this. And the first episode just kind of blew me away. Uh, I really. Yeah. I, I, I think I still think that. I mean, I, I like Blake Seven. That's another show we could talk about. I like it enough. But Chris Boucher became script editor on that for all four seasons in 1978 and thus was robbed from any future contributions to Doctor Who. And that is criminal because I think he's he's the most underrated writer in Doctor Who history. He's a protege of Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes sort of brought him in, thought he would do well in a, in a, in a show like Doctor Who. He wrote three really quick episodes and did them really, really well. And then went off to do Blake Seven. And the the one thing that you sort of look, you look at Robots of Death, you look at stuff in Blake Seven, you look at uh, his Star Cops work, is that the dialogue and the sort of the interaction between the characters is just spot on and just entertaining and enthralling and and just sort of like there there's some biting jabs back and forth. He's such a great dialogue writer, and that's that's what kind of really hooked me from from the get go on Star Cops. And a world builder too. I feel yeah. like there's little tidbits that he drops in, and I haven't watched Blake Seven yet, so that's that's going to be one that I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm sure I'll watch it for this show. Um, but in Doctor Who and in Star Cops, like they'll give out information that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the immediate plot, but it helps to build the world, so you at least understand it a little bit better. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. How many episodes did you watch of Star Cops, out of curiosity? Uh, I watched the first two and then read synopses of most of the other ones just so I could understand a, a little bit. The tricky th- the thing with uh, Tripods is it's a 20-minute show, and that's pretty easy to digest. And I could have it on while I was at work if it was a slow day at the library. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the imagery is, is the, the sci-fi aspect of it kids could walk past and they'd be okay with. Um, but some of the language in Star Cops is a little bit more adult. I mean, it's not profane, but the subject matter and murder and, and so on is a little more than I could have. Yeah, I was surprised at that, especially 87. Yes. And they were using words that they just are now starting to use words in American TV now. <laughs> well, I think I think it was post-Watershed. I think it aired at like 9 o'clock or something like that. So they were allowed to yeah. get away with a little bit more. The only, the only reason I ask is that uh, the first three episodes are, we're looking for Doctor Who connections. Chris Boucher right. is obviously one of them. Um, the first three episodes are done by, I think, Christopher Baker is the name of the director. And he sort yes. of directs it in his own style. It's sort of it's sort of a little more brightly lit. Uh, lo and behold, to, much to my great delight at the time, uh, I think the next three episodes are done by one Graham Harper. Harper. Ah. Yeah, who completely shoots it in a different way, and like the lighting is so low, and there's some great innovative shots, and 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 uh, yeah, so so his episodes were were superb, and I I really quite like how because he was that was still young and hungry, um, Graham Harper, so there was some sort of Caves of Androzani esque flourishes to to what he was doing on that. Yeah, I didn't get that far, but I did see Gary Downey's name, but I <laughs> I guess you wouldn't really notice what kind of contribution was going on there. But. <laughs> A negative one, according to reports, but yeah. (laughs) You were talking about the kind of the mundane crimes that um, happen kind of in space, and I I like that there's a parallel crime usually on Earth that, Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, if, if, for instance, I feel like it's almost patronizing in a way, like if your audience is at home and they don't understand the concepts of a hard sci-fi 
crime show, we're going to draw a parallel to a crime that committed on Earth that allows them to at least draw the connections. Is it that way for the entirety of the series? No, they uh, it, the, the sort of the the crux of the series is sort of like Nathan Spring sort of like striving to not striving to, but sort of being forced to move away from Earth, so to speak, sort of become, you know, a, a sort of based on in in near orbit, basically, uh, because he sort of has ties to to Earth and everything, and he's very reluctant to leave, and then he sort of like has no choice but to leave, more or less, because because his, his world is sort of left being left behind him a little bit. So no, that first episode, especially the very first montage uh, over this searing guitar work for the theme song, which has had much, much derision over the years. Uh, oh, but, dear. but I do like the, uh, I do like the interplay between what's happening in space and what's happening at earth at the time. But, uh, but no, there isn't as much, but earth is always there. It's always there, obviously, because they're, they're very close to earth and stuff. And I think there's scenes on earth, uh, on, every single episode i could be wrong about that but uh but no after that first episode it doesn't really sort of do that kind of theme which is neat in a way i, I do like the way that they, they sort of use it as a framing device in, in the first episode though no i was just saying i just was kind of surprised to see them back on earth uh in episode two um to do investigations it seems like going from uh, the space station to um the back to Earth and to the moon and so on and forth is, is a lot easier than you would imagine it to be. But I think that's also kind of the point. Yeah, like there's like, you know, shuttles, like passenger shuttles that go to the moon um, and space stations at that time. Maybe not so much space stations because there's not that many um, public space. Where are they going now to think about it? There's a moon base. We don't really see much in the way of like holiday resorts on the moon. And I don't know if they mention much. I'm just thinking in a future episode, there's like a passenger liner. I'm thinking, where are they going? I don't know where they're <laughs> where they're actually going. Well, it I could guess be like more the space tours. To you know, you could you could go orbit the moon, see it, and uh, you know, come back to Earth. We always have passenger. A, it seems to be a popular thing in sci-fi. That's true. That's true. Okay, I can I can see the way around that. That works. But I, I what I also like though is is that they you know they. They're zero G, you know. They're not like sort of faking it. Uh, there's like there's there's some wire work going on in the first couple episodes because they're on on a space station and stuff. Like they haven't just magically sort of discovered um, zero G till they get to the moon. Then for some reason, moon gravity is exactly the same as Earth. I'm sure there's some scientific reason around that. But there's there's a lot of stuff sort of based in science and sort of like what we know about science now, which is kind of cool. I, I was gonna say I I must compliment them on their zero g for the time you know without using mm -hmm. yeah. cso and to use the wire work i felt was pretty decent you know there's a there's a scene in episode two where um spring is just getting up in the morning and is still getting his his uh, space leg so to speak and he's just kind of flopping all over the place while, <laughs> while everyone else is just kind of going about their business and while that is sort of played for laughs, it is believable in the way it's it's shown. And I thought that was uh, that was fun. You could tell some of it was done with strings, but some of it was camera tricks. Some of it was just them moving slow on their own. Yeah. But it all sort of it, it all blended together. It looked it looked pretty real. Yeah, and and you know you have to think that they shot this like any other BBC show. It was like multi camera in studio, essentially as live, so to speak. So. You know, with with the benefit of shooting on film and being able to edit around stuff, you can sort of get away with a lot more. So to sort of attempt like live in studio Kirby wires is uh, was pretty bold on their part. It, I think I think it mostly worked, especially when items were flying out of your hands. Uh, you know, like he's he's reaching for breakfast and breakfast floats away, and you, yeah, uh, yeah, kind of. You know, there's a little wobble to it. You can kind mm -hmm. of see where the uh, the wires tent pole sort of in the back of the shirt, but. For the time, you know, bravo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was commendable. I I like that they attempted it. That's the great thing about shows that I like is that you know they might not necessarily succeed, but they're gonna try no matter what they do. This is how Doctor Who has sort of been a success over the years too. They don't they don't sort of let their limitations um, set them back. Yeah, and this is a show, Star Cops, of course, um, that has you know been off the air for a number of years and. I think people are still looking on it pretty fondly, and it sounds like, just from what I've read, there's sort of a resurgence of interest in the program. 
I want, oh, maybe just because of people like me, um, telling everyone else about, about it. Why I might be behind this 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 very tiny uptick because uh, I keep telling. It's funny because uh, um, I, I was at a Chicago Tardis a couple of years ago, and Matt Irvine was there. Of course, uh, has done a lot of Doctor Who visual effects over the years, and uh, is now the the owner of the original Canine prop. And but he also worked on on the tripods, and he also worked on Star Cops, and so he was doing his little like sort of presentation of the various stuff that he's worked on at Chicago Tardis, like a little slideshow, so to speak. And he sort of gets to a slide of like this little this little moon buggy or something. And I says, "No, I bet you no one here knows what this is." I'm standing at the back of the room. I sort of notice the silence, and I says, "Out of hell with it, Star Cops!" I yell out <laughs> from the back room. <laughs> Because, of course, I had to. And so when I interviewed him later on in that day, I, I talked a little bit about Star Cops about him, too. So, so yeah, I don't know how many. I think I think this one is, is more looked upon more fondly, I think, from people in the U.K. than, than the Tripods was. Because I think they do appreciate Chris Belcher's writing and his dialogue. And I think that's sort of something that sort of still shines through today. And I think uh, that's still one of my favorite parts. You know, especially Colin Devis. Um, sort of the the boorish lieutenant, um, with that great walrus mustache. Yeah, it's played by Trevor Cooper, who's another Doctor Who connection. He was in Revelation of the Dallas, and later on played Friar Tuck. Not Friar Tuck. He was um, yeah, it was Friar Tuck. Friar Tuck in uh, in Robot of Sherwood just a couple years ago in Doctor Who, and uh, and him and I, you know, I like um, David Through. I like the his interplay with uh, with the traffic controller on the, on the first episode all sorts of stuff like that there's, there's just some great dialogue in this show yeah and how uh, spring and throw are like movie buffs and they trade lines for movies back and forth that was pretty cool yeah you know yeah that's a fun thing and uh nathan nathan spring was played by david calder who i, I didn't recognize at first um so i looked him up and i was like wow he's been in a lot of stuff and my wife just finished um emerald city they came on earlier this year, and he was like a king in there or something. Oh, really? Yeah. And he was also the voice of Box, which was in here, which was basically Alexa about 30 years ago. <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's one of the great things. It's got the Alexa or like Siri or essentially like this, uh, which, of course, everybody has now. But uh, but at, at the time they were making this, this weird futuristic box that has all the answers, I think, is was quite ahead of its time. Uh, which is kind of cool. I love David Calder. I I wish that he was in in Doctor Who at some point because I think he'd be great. I think he's in his seventies now, but I I just I really liked his take. You could tell he's just a proper British actor who sort of put into this uh, this role, and that really gives it some oomph. I thought. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. Yeah, I I certainly you know any listeners who are considering whether or not they should take up Star Cops. Uh, there's only nine episodes. I certainly have every intention of finishing the series up um, at my leisure. Uh, so, you know, I, I certainly. What about you, Brent? Have you finished it? You've watched it all of it, haven't you? No, I've, I got through three. I started four and I got interrupted. Um, but yeah, that's that's one I watch. I, I found them all on YouTube. Yep. Uh, luckily. Um, Tripods season one used to be on YouTube and then it got yanked, so two is on there. But I I'm gonna go buy the DVD for Tripods because I would really like to see those all the way through. Yeah, same here. Yeah, if you can find it, I I wish you luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after getting the glimpse of of what season two looks like for Tripods, I I, I wanna I wanna check that out as well. Well, Stephen, um, one of the things that we had discussed is. Having you on, you're such a knowledgeable person. Uh, it's kind of daunting in a way. Uh, I don't think I know uh, as much about anything as you do about Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> but what I'm kind of curious, and this is something that Brett and I were discussing, is Doctor Who has been a part of both of your lives for much longer than it's been a part of mine. You know, um, I came to it relatively late in life except via the comic books, which I, I read as a kid, and then I started watching the, the movie in 96. Um, but to have it as a part of your lives, both of your lives, for so long, we we're kind of curious to discuss things that you have learned from or because of Doctor Who, like information, life lessons, um, hmm. anything anything along those lines that you kind of would just like to, to share with us. 
I went through my list and I'm like, I, I, I've learned three things from Doctor Who that I didn't know before. But, you know, when I come to it, three. There's things, well, I want to make a distinction. There's things you can learn from it and then there's things you can learn because of it. And uh, right. my because of has certainly is kind of outshined as far as a list is concerned. But I, I wanted to present that to really the, to you as our guest, but also to Brent as well, because I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this. Well, um, there's little things that I've learned, like um, Colin Baker's doctor taught me more words, and I think I, I remember to this day from that time than <laughs> any that I learned, like loquacious. And uh, I've always used that word because he used it in um, the end of Mysterious Planet. I always wonder what that was, so I looked it up. Um, and other such Sag- things. Sagacity. Sagacity and all these other great, you know, the, <laughs> the Colin Baker's an underrated era. I think there's some some clever writing that sort of really suits his doctor in there. And oddly enough, it comes mostly from Pippin Jane Baker. Um, on, honestly, the, the I mean, I owe everything to Doctor Who. And my <laughs> entire life has changed because of it. And I think what I embraced about it is that I was, when I was a kid in high school, terrified to let on that I liked Doctor Who because I didn't want to be thought as an uncool kid and so I just I kept my fandom and my love for the show quite closeted I think but I think what eventually sort of led me to sort of be out and proud so to speak as a Doctor Who fan is that the title character was completely his own person and was not in any way apprehensive about it and so I think Doctor Who taught me to sort of be myself and I think that's what a lot of people you go to Doctor Who conventions and there's people that just you know they dress as they would want to dress because damn it that's what the doctor would do and that's what they are going to do they are comfortable with themselves and they are going to show that pride in themselves and their love for Doctor Who and so that's that's the one abiding thing that I sort of take away from Doctor Who Brent same question. Well, there's a, like you said, there's things that you learn from it and things you learn because of it. Um, little things like um, there's a scene at the beginning of Green Death where Joe and the Doctor are talking, and, and uh, he tells her about protein. Hmm. Eating eggs and bacon in the morning is something you need. You need protein in the morning. And I thought, hey, that's 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 a good lesson there. So. Uh, I picked up on that one, but there's a, <laughs> a, a pre- precious little protein in an apple. I remember that too, Brent. <laughs> yeah, in uh, in the Android Invasion, there's a scene where um, the Doctor goes into a, a bar and he walks up and says, "Give me a ginger beer." <laughs> and and when I was a kid, I thought, "Well, that's a weird kind of beer," you know. And um, then I got older and I went on vacation once uh, with my wife and we went to Myrtle Beach. And there was a shop out there that had different kinds of uh, drinks, and I saw ginger beer, and I thought, okay, well, this is sort of like a like a drink, like root beer, not really beer, you know. A ginger beer, I'm gonna drink this because a doctor drank. <laughs> that was the most that was the most horrible thing I've ever drunk in my entire life. It was awful. I was like, oh my, this is horrible. But you know, that's where I got the idea. Oh, but it's. Other things, um, <laughs> the 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 Android duplicate would have enjoyed it, so it's good to see that you're the real brand. <laughs> um, old Hartnell historicals, I learned a lot about history from those, uh, especially the Big Finish historicals. Like, um, there's a Fourth Doctor st- audio that came out a couple of years ago called "The Wrath of the Iceni," and it's about Queen Boudicca and the British rebellion against uh, the rule of the Roman Empire. I had no idea any of that happened. Uh, especially about her and um, looking into that and reading about that apparently that's a that's a big subject in history in in British school you know and we don't being in America I guess we don't learn a lot about that over here but that's that's a big story over there I had no idea about any of that till I heard that story yeah she's she's awesome she's brilliant I, I'm I'm with you actually the I was looking through uh, kind of the this all the serials and trying to remember you know what have I learned? Uh, and a lot of it comes from historicals. You know something that I uh, actually about history. I did not know that China was originally called Cathay. So thank you Marco Polo for that. <laughs> Look at um, that first historical is teaching the things. <laughs> uh, I had never heard of the Mary Celeste until I saw the chase. So the mm-hmm. chase was good for something. 
Uh, and even in the new series, I did not know that Agatha Christie disappeared for a, a period of time. And having watched The Unicorn and the Wasp, I learned about that and then checked up on it to see if it was indeed true. And indeed it was, which made me appreciate that episode even more. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I came to the show at, at 30 years old, essentially, and, and I, I can still learn, learn something uh, from it. But, you know, you both seem to have something, you know, life lessons that you've learned because of it. And I, and I appreciate, Stephen, what you'd said about kind of being who you are. That's certainly now in, in life I can look at things, situations, and go, what would the doctor do uh, in those? <laughs> but my life has also changed dramatically because of Doctor Who. Uh, even Even this late in life, you know, I had never listened to a podcast prior to watching Doctor Who. I had... You know, never gone to a convention prior to watching Doctor Who. I'd never held an interview with a, someone I had admired on TV until I watched Doctor Who. Uh, I didn't even have a big clue as to Canadian geography until I started watching <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Who. You know, uh, I didn't realize fandom could be so fickle until watching Doctor Who and exploring that a little further. Ooh, Time difference between London and Greensboro. <laughs> Very important. Be thank you, Doctor. <laughs> I never knew that a Scottish accent could be so sexy until Doctor Who. So you know, there's. I feel it like it goes I've, on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, it sort of does. It sort of does. So Stephen, uh, you are a part of a number of podcasts. Would you like to give them a shout out before we go? Goodness me. Uh, yes. Well, um, Radio Free Scarrow is the main one coming up to 600 episodes sometime this calendar year, which will be our 11th year of existence, which is nuts to think of because it's just sort of I, I don't remember what I was doing before I did Radio Free Scarrow. So that's the thing that, that happens uh, with a new series to talk about as well, which is very exciting because we haven't done that in a couple of years, it seems. Um I also do Lazy Doctor Who with my wife, Erica. We are also sort of working our way through the the classic series at the moment. Uh, the War Machines at time of recording is what we're up to right now. A lot of these um, stuff, especially the recons, Erica has never seen before. So it's kind of exciting to sort of get her initial reaction. We just sort of, Lazy Doctor Who, the premise of it is that we watch it whenever we watch it. And we're not sort of bound by a schedule or anything like that. So sometimes we'll watch like eight episodes over the course of three days. And then not talk about it for, not watch another one for like another three weeks. So that's just the luck of the draw. That's just how life goes. Um, and then I'm on... Hockey Feels, which is my hockey podcast, which I do with uh, Rachel, um, who I'm just, I think she's been on some Hamilton podcasts as well uh, for the Incomparable Network, but, but she's on Hockey Feels with me. And I also do podcast production stuff uh, with the, my company Castria that Erica and I sort of started this past year. Um, we, we purposely slowly sort of got into it, sort of like producing and editing and providing advice for people wanting to start podcasts or ones who already have ones going, but it's, it's sort of starting to pick up a little bit, um, which is nice, and it, but it's also nice to not have to sort of like, you know, um, have it be the main income provider in, in our household so I can sort of build it at a pace that I'm comfortable with and not sort of be overwhelmed. Uh, but in that auspice, I, we also produce uh, Uncanny Magazine podcast, which uh, won a Hugo for uh, Best Semi-Prosine last year um, in, in the Hugo Awards in, in Worldcon in Kansas City. So so I now have a Hugo Award thanks to, thanks to my podcast stuff, which, of course, I wouldn't have started doing had I not watched Doctor Who. So, so there you go. Uh, the Radio Free Scarrow, at Radio Free Scarrow on Twitter. Um, Lazy Doctor Who, we are Castria on on Twitter as well, and then Candy Magazine. So so there. And then I won't even begin to tell you how many podcasts Erica does because she has completely outflanked me when it comes to number of podcasts that she appears on. <laughs> well, thanks for being on here today, Stephen. It's good to talk to you again. Well, thanks, chaps. Thanks for. I, I will always uh, accept any invite to talk about um, the tripods and, and star cops, even if no one else ever sees those episodes. I can at least tell people how great they they were to me. Well, we thank you for for joining us at Who and Company. 
Come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. You can download the podcast directly from whoandcompany.lipson.com. You can also contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. A special shout-out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. See you next month. One day, I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. Sir John Hart. Thank you very much for making this fabulous piece.